0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, abortion politics reveal concerns. Was the headline one paper gave a recent AP story, language so bland it almost discourages reading the piece, which reports how right-wingers and anti-abortion activists are seeking to undermine or undo democratic processes themselves when those processes accurately reflect the public desire to protect reproductive rights. Methods include, quote, challenging election results, refusing to bring state laws into line with voter-backed changes, moving to strip state courts of their power to consider abortion-related laws, and challenging the citizen-led ballot initiative process itself, close quote. So there is a way to cover abortion access as a political issue without reducing it to one. But too many outlets seem to have trouble shaking the framing of abortion as a controversy or as posing problems for this or that politician, rather than presenting it as a matter of basic human rights that majorities in this country have long supported and centering in their coverage the people who are being affected by its creeping criminalization. Melissa Jira Grant is a staff writer at The New Republic and the author of Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, and of the forthcoming A Woman is Against the Law, Sex, Race and the Limits of Justice in America. She's been reporting on abortion for years and joins us this week to talk about it. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. The Washington Post editorial board is worried. A November 22nd editorial warned, if attitudes don't shift, a political dating mismatch will threaten marriage. The Post has identified a growing ideological divide between single young men and women, with far more women identifying as liberal, a gap that's particularly pronounced among Gen Z white people, the board takes care to point out. Add to that a survey of college students that found 71% of Democrats would not date someone with opposing views. And the Post says you find yourself with a mismatch that means, quote, someone will need to compromise, close quote. And since it's Democrats saying they won't date Republicans... Well, that would mean the young liberal women are the ones who need to do the compromising. Julie Holler and Jim Narikis wrote about this for FAIR.org, but just know that a major source for this hand-wringing weirdness is the Institute for Family Studies, the right-wing group whose senior fellow, Brad Wilcox, also cited, was involved in discredited anti-same-sex marriage research a decade ago. The numbers don't show what they say they do. But the data don't seem to be the point in an editorial about how the collapse of American marriage is imminent unless young liberal women stop being so political and uncompromising. The board sniffs, "...unfortunately, Americans have not equipped themselves to discuss, debate, and reason across these divides." Close quote. Is the problem maybe the side of the divide that's committed to a whole different reality that permits no reasoning and criminalizes the expression of ideas it disagrees with? No. Quote, particularly on college campuses, a culture of seeking sameness has set up young Americans for disappointment, close quote. The link there tellingly goes to another Post editorial advising universities to shut up about issues like institutional and structural racism and reproductive freedom. People's insight and understanding about the world, the Post says, often come from considering alternative perspectives that may at first seem odd or offensive. What's odd or offensive to a young liberal woman surely includes things like the outright misogyny that the Post acknowledges is popular among some boys and young men. But instead of centering the solutions on things like combating such misogyny in our culture, the Post instead says women should suck it up and open their minds to those perspectives, lest they bring on the collapse of American marriage. You're listening to Counterspin brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade has generated well-grounded fear and confusion. States ginning up their own specific laws and attempting to extend them to other states. Politicians and pundits attempting to shift opinion through rhetoric. It's not a ban, it's a standard. And what about abortion tourism? Combined with horrific emerging stories of women being forced to labor through dangerous complications, it adds up to an unclear but clearly disturbing situation and to a crying need for reporting with an overt fealty to human rights rather than a lazy and cowardly both sidesing of a shifting terrain. Melissa Jira Grant is a staff writer at The New Republic and the author of Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work from Verso. And of A Woman is Against the Law, Sex, Race, and the Limits of Justice in America, which is forthcoming from Little Brown. She's co-director of the film They Won't Call It Murder, about police murders in Columbus, Ohio, from Field of Vision. And she joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, Melissa Jira-Grant. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to start by situating a story that some listeners will have heard about a case in Idaho where the mother of a 15-year-old accused the girl's boyfriend and his mother of taking the girl across state lines to obtain an abortion. Folks may have heard that prosecutors applied trafficking laws here, but that wasn't quite right. But it isn't that some legislators aren't trying to criminalize interstate travel for abortions. So we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Would you tease out, to the extent that you think it's meaningful, the bit here about some initial misreporting from the reality of the problem that folks are worrying about?
1: Sure. I think it starts with just a real sense of urgency, a legitimate sense of urgency, After years, particularly in feminist media and for folks who've been covering abortion rights for a long time, journalists have been hearing from other journalists that, like, Roe's not going anywhere, don't you worry. You know, it's this kind of patronizing thing. And isn't it sad that now we're in this moment and people who have that expertise are having to deal with this whole national terrain of stories, different things happening in different states to different people, the story of a post-Roe world is a very fractured story. There's no single story. But the biggest fear, I think, is that after the Dobbs decision came down in 2022, there would be an increase in the criminal punishment of people seeking abortions, people having abortions, and people helping people have abortions. And that's what looks like is going on in this story in Idaho. It looks like when a mother initiated this criminal investigation into her daughter's boyfriend and the boyfriend's mother, it seems like what was seen as a problem was not just that they had had a relationship when she was underage or that she had run away or something like that. There's definitely some of that in the background. The problem that's identified is they took her across state lines for an abortion. What makes this unique is that the state in which this happened, Idaho, was the first state after Dobbs to pass a law creating this crime that never existed before of abortion trafficking. And it simply means going across state lines to have an abortion. Idaho is almost a zero-access state, but nearby in Washington and Oregon, you do have the possibility of accessing surgical abortion. So that sort of sets the stage here, I think, for A lot of confusion because this girl's boyfriend and mother, while it looks like they were criminalized for the act of taking her across state lines for an abortion or simply being the people who at her request took her across state lines for an abortion, it's not entirely clear. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't use the abortion trafficking law against them. They used an existing statute on kidnapping but mentioned abortion in the news stories that came out about the case. And so it was very easy for people to say, this is the first use of this law. It's happening. This thing we were really scared about is happening. But the reality was a lot more complicated. And, and we still don't know all of the facts. But I understand the need to sort of urgently let people know when the criminalization of abortion is ramping up at the speed that it is. It's not the speed of journalism. Journalism needs to be a lot more slow and deliberate than the speed of a criminal punishment system attacking people for having an abortion.
0: What we don't want to be lost. It's not that there's no reason to fear prosecutors um, and politicians using laws and charges that maybe don't specifically mention abortion, but that still are used to criminalize access to abortion. And you've written about that a lot. So it is a larger story. It's not just an anecdote. It's a real story about the use of laws, including the Mann Act, which a lot of people will think is a blast from the past, uh, to criminalize abortion access. Yeah.
1: Yes, this has been going on even when we had the protections of Roe, is that you would find examples and groups like Pregnancy Justice and If When How Reproductive Justice uh, lawyers have done extensive research going back 20 years or so, looking at how people have been prosecuted for their own abortion, even though abortion was legal, where they had that abortion. And there's lots of charges that can be weaponized in this way. Charges related to disposal of fetal remains, for example, in one case, uh, in several cases. One that I wrote about in Georgia in 2015 uh, involved uh, a woman who had taken misoprostol, an abortion inducing drug. Um, when she went to the hospital seeking care, they reported her and the police arrested her out of her bed and charged her with malice murder of the fetus. She was also charged with. Um, using drugs while pregnant. And, you know, that's another common charge that we see. You know, people trying to find ways to punish people for having an abortion, even though by the letter of the law, they're not supposed to be able to do that. And I think because this is such a complicated question, there's no one law that's being used, right? You can't just look for, like, everybody who's been charged with this crime. It involves getting into this much more political and nuanced story about what prosecutors do with the law, what they think they can get away with. And that's different in different places. You know, in the Idaho example that we began with, that prosecutor now is out in the press saying, oh, no, this has nothing to do with the abortion. The abortion has nothing to do with the case. Who knows if that's true or not? Mm -hmm. But it is good for people to know that this incident didn't need the abortion trafficking law to result in criminal punishment for this abortion and i think that's a nuance that just isn't coming across in most reporting certainly people who cover the criminal legal system a lot see that all the time but because that kind of reporting and reporting on abortion are often siloed from one another we aren't learning across issues of you know what it is to sort of deal with a prosecutor in a politicized case And what power they have with the law that exceeds like what many of us might think the law could actually
0: do to us. Absolutely. And you note it as one of many things calling for an appreciation of the power of storytelling, of the way that we present these issues to people. And you make a point uh, that we've talked about on CounterSpin, which is if you just read newspapers. You might think of abortion as like there's two sides. It's an issue. We're going to see who wins. And the reality is so much more complicated. And in fact, reproductive rights advocates and providers have never believed that Roe was enough to truly protect all people's ability to access abortion. I mean, the Hyde Amendment itself would tell you that. But they also didn't Think the overturning of Roe was going to shut down all of their work, you know. But kind of the main idea presented by a lot of politicians and by corporate media is that abortion comes down to electoral politics or Supreme Court rulings. And that's just always been misleading, hasn't it, about where this actual fight is?
1: It really says something about mainstream political media's value of the lives of women or anyone who has an abortion, Mm -hmm. how, you know, reproductive rights are seen within the broader context of politics in the United States, that this has truly been treated as a separate special issue that doesn't have very much to do with people who actually need abortions. It's mostly about voters, Mm -hmm. right? Or it's about the Supreme Court and what voters think about what's going to happen at the Supreme Court. It's about something transactional that has nothing to do with the actual abortion itself. Maybe that's because there's still places in media where there's a reluctance to even say the word abortion. We have a president who's reluctant to say the word abortion. Right. So the reality of what it is to even have an abortion, what that entails, is something that has to be consciously brought into every story about this. If one of the people that I really admire and how she does this is Renee Bracey Sherman, who is the co-executive director of a group called We Testify that does abortion storytelling work. That's how they do their advocacy. And when she testified in Congress earlier this year, or it may have been the end of last year, I'm not 100% sure, but sometimes since the Dobbs decision came down, in her testimony, she actually verbally gave the instructions for how to use medication for an abortion, how to use misoprostol and misoprostol. And so that's in the congressional record now. That's on C-SPAN. Like, that is information that could be considered against the law to share in some states. The degree to in which information is powerful here, I think, isn't quite fully appreciated. Um, and what that also means is that every story kind of feels like people are reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. um, particularly in mainstream outlets, that, you know, there has been incredible reporting from outlets like Rewire, formerly RH Reality Check, from outlets like Bitch, which is no longer, outlets like Jezebel, which we'll see, <laughs> I right. think they just cut. Right. Revived today, maybe. Um, there's been incredible reporting, you know, under the umbrella of quote unquote women's media, that has gotten to this nuance and that was really marginalized right up until the moment. Roe was a big story in 2022 or, you know, whenever there's an election and and abortion becomes a story for five minutes. So the information is out there. It just needs to become part of the practice, particularly in, you know, legacy media. And to realize that this is a story that has implications for people in their day to day lives, not just every four years or when a Supreme Court seat opens up.
0: Exactly. And, you know, I'm just following on from that to say how galled I am by pieces like, OK, it's this one's from Stephen Roberts, you know, but still it's reflective <laughs> of, I think, a pervasive kind of Beltway media attitude. And it's a column, syndicated column, the headlines, Why the Abortion Issue Matters. All right. So already I read issue. So I know that my human rights are first and foremost, a political football, like an issue to be considered. And then in the same breath, there's the idea that somebody needs to have it explained why it matters. You know, like somebody needs doesn't understand why it's important. But then he goes on to explain that why it matters has to do with what's damaging to Joe Biden and whether Trump might be able to finesse a new line on abortion. But I guess what maybe bothered me most was that Steve Roberts says that polls show, you know, U.S. public opinion is clear and it's unchanged. Mm -hmm. Americans want legal abortion. They want access to abortion. And he then says that since Roe, quote, abortion remained an abstraction to pro-abortion rights voters. Their rights were protected and their attitude was complacent, close quote, now, I don't doubt that Stephen Roberts had a lot of cocktail parties with some complacent white women, right? But mm-hmm. reporting is not supposed to be, as my mother-in-law used to say, something that happens to or near an editor. You know, you're supposed to seek out the views of the people who are affected by the things that you're talking about. And reproductive justice, of course, extends beyond the right to abortion, the right to have a pregnancy, and a child in a safe, healthy environment. It just seems like reporting about abortion has so much to do with who they talk to or who they listen to. Um, and that defines their understanding of what the meaning of access to this right means. I guess I just want to say, uh, you know, you're a reporter. What would you like to see more or less of in this coverage?
1: I mean one thing that's maddening about that kind of coverage is it feels like at its best when somebody who has that kind of perspective does decide to actually reach outside their you know small network of of friendly sources and maybe try to contact somebody who you know works in a clinic or is a provider or is involved in some direct way with the provision of abortion they tend to not treat those people with a lot of respect mm-hmm. right this comes down to who they listen to and who they believe, you know, the best reporting on abortion comes from people who are not treating their sources like a pump that they can just hit at will, Mm -hmm. you know, and get what they need out of them. The stories I was hearing from people who work in clinics leading up to Dobbs And immediately after, you know, hearing from reporters they had never heard from before, reporters who wanted to come by in like two hours and talk to someone who just had an abortion. I mean, just outrageous stuff that, like, I can absolutely hear an editor telling them, like, that would be a great idea. But it is your job to push back and say, like, I don't know. Like, I think that maybe a better time to interview someone about their personal experience of abortion isn't an hour after they've had one when it might be illegal. Right. Right. Like, there hasn't been a full appreciation of people's ability to speak out about this is going to be shaped by who is worried about the legal consequences of abortion right like we are disproportionately probably going to see people in states that have legal abortion access people who might not fully appreciate the criminal risks that they are having abortions under which does include a lot of those white cocktail party women wherever they live it's a lot i understand to ask of sort of the way that news particularly kind of political news that treats abortion as just like an issue that we return to when it's time to talk about elections or what voters want. But that kind of reporting feels so unnecessary and, and so out of pace with where we're at right now. Like, we need stories about this gap between the rhetoric of politicians in places like Texas and Montana about valuing mothers and showing that that's not actually... Playing out in the lives of people in those states who are having huge maternal mortality rates, who aren't able to get access to childcare. Like all of these women that they say they're going to support because they're taking abortion away from them, but don't worry, we'll support you when you're pregnant and parenting. And that support is not showing up. It was never that great before this moment, and it's not great now. And those are the people that need more scrutiny. Those are the people who should be held to account. There's So many attorneys general, there are so many Republican lawmakers, there are so many judges. Oh, my God, there's some incredible judges with really consequential abortion cases in front of them right now. My favorite slash least favorite is Judge Matthew Kaczmarek. He's in Amarillo, Texas. He gets a lot of cases from the right because he takes 98 to 99 percent of cases that come to his court. So if you are a conservative who wants a favorable ruling, this is your guy. And he has a case before him right now that could result in mifepristone Priestone being essentially delisted from the FDA's approved drug listings, which would mean that it would be much more difficult to get and there would be legal pathways to it. that would be cut off. Where is the scrutiny on him? You know, like, I feel like the, the frame maybe has to be shifted around now to who, who the story of abortion is about the story of people who are creating harm in the lives of people who now have to fight that much harder to access abortion. I think that's the other thing that's been lost. Abortions haven't changed. I mean, there are people who have not been able to have abortions as a result of this, but abortions haven't stopped. They've just become less accessible. And I feel like that nuance is also often lost. It's, again, this binary of pro-choice or anti-abortion or however it gets sort of bracketed out. But the reality is no matter what people's politics of abortion might be, they're going to need an abortion or they know someone who needs an abortion or has had an abortion. And access is really the much more critical question than politics.
0: And I also feel that in your reporting, you've worked out or explored the intersectional aspect and the historical aspect that is kind of outside of the frame of the way that a lot of corporate news media are coming to this as it's an electoral politics issue of 2024, when in fact, it's a deep issue. You've connected attacks on women's reproductive rights to attacks on trans people. There's a bigger picture going on here. And just finally, there's a need for journalism right now. Yeah, I think it's I'm trying to think of how I could possibly sum that I, I, up. Please, I don't know. I don't know. That's why I asked yeah. you.
1: In terms of the history, I love bringing that into my work. I know that that's certainly not something that everybody can do in their own journalism. But, you know, set me up to write about the Comstock Act of 1873, and I will go to town and I will find a way to bring that into reporting on what's going on in the present. In
0: because fact. it's meaningful. Because it's meaningful, yeah. right? If you're trying to explain to people how we got to where we are I don't feel like it's outside. I don't feel like history is outside of reporting. You're trying to tell people how we got to where we are. And that's crucial. And it it leaves avenues open to opponents of abortion
1: when those aren't under scrutiny. Right. So one of the reasons I'm writing about the Comstock Act right now is there's this sort of legal theory emerging on the right and among anti-abortion groups that we already have a national abortion ban in the Comstock Act of 1873, which was never fully taken off the books and did criminalize using the mail system to mail any instrument that could cause an abortion. And so they're testing this out now in places like district courts in Texas. They're trying to build something that would create precedent or get it in front of the Supreme Court again, that essentially says we already have this national prohibition on abortion. That is not getting the coverage outside of a couple of legal experts who focus on abortion and reproductive rights that it needs. And because it's complicated, I get it. But I just can see a story like that, you know, in a year, people describing it as like the law that no one saw coming.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So like we could see it coming if we wanted to.
0: I'm going to end right there. We've been speaking with Melissa Jira Grant. You can find her work primarily at The New Republic online at TNR.com. Melissa Jarrett-Grant, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.